Warning! This episode contains foul language and various topics surrounding wartime, including death, disease, weapons, and concentration camps. listening to Keep It Weird, the podcast for all things strange and unusual, eerie and sinister, and all around mysterious. Each week I have the pleasure of sitting down with my co-host Lauren and chatting about something weird. This week, Lauren is out of town, but I get to sit down with one of your all-time favorite guests to talk about the biggest event in human history. World War II was a global war that lasted from 1939 to 1945. It involved more than 100 million personnel from over 30 countries. Several countries, including the United States, threw their entire economic, industrial, and scientific capabilities behind the war effort, combining the efforts of civilian and military resources like never seen before. Close to 75 million people died in World War II, including about 20 million military personnel and 40 million civilians. We created jet engines, computer, and radar, began to mass-produce penicillin, approved the first flu vaccine, and developed blood transfusion systems. It changed the world in countless ways. It also is full of stories involving the weird. My name is Ashley, and today I'm joined by a World War II enthusiast and one handsome devil, Joe Oakes. Mm, hello. Hello, everyone. How are you? Hello, World War II enthusiast. Mm, yes, World it's War II. It's kind of weird to call it an, a World War II enthusiast. What's a better yes. way to say it? World War II... Um, slut. Slut. Because I am... <laughs> I'm such a I, I'm such, such a white I'm such a white dad. Yeah, yeah, when it, you are, I, I really when it am. You want like I, I like uh, football and porno and books about war, yeah. as Dennis Leary once famously said. I remember that was not a beer, by the way. That was a black raspberry Lacroix. Lacroix. Uh, yes, I have always been a uh, a big World War II uh, nut. Like you said so eloquently in the opening to this episode, it is quite literally the biggest thing that has ever happened on this planet. Yeah, that it, we uh, know of. Yes. It, yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> Unless technology uh, like ours existed long before that is the a, ancient that is, that is Egyptians quite a, were quite here. A, quite a start to and a world war. Whole... Let's, let's try to keep one toe tethered well, I'm in. I'm just saying, <laughs> what if the whole planet got destroyed and we had to start over? And That's I'm just I'm saying, saying. there's enough interesting stuff in World <laughs> War II to not talk about some dune shit. Okay? <laughs> All right, fine. All right. Fine, I'll lay off the dune shit. Yeah, yeah lay it's, off the dune the shit, at least until it comes out. Biggest thing that uh, has ever happened. Yeah, it's and... the biggest. It showcased the absolute worst and best traits of mankind. Yep. It served as both the opening and closing bells for multiple empires. Yep. Tragically ended the lives of, as you said, around 75 million people, most of whom were civilians. Yeah. You know, just to put it into context, 58,000 Americans died in Vietnam. Yeah. 
and uh, nearly 500,000 Americans died in World War II. And we didn't get hit nearly as hard uh, as far as uh, death toll, infrastructure damage, economic collapse. We didn't get hit nearly as hard as any of the Western or Eastern European nations. Mm -hmm. And it was still the biggest thing that ever happened in America. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, I, I'm but not... it was also an interesting time. I mean, it's the definitely the last time we were at war as a country, and it was a just cause. It was yeah. It, it was, was a... legitimately good guys versus bad yeah, guys. Yeah, there was a very clear like these are the bad guys, yeah. and that we are the mean, good guys. That doesn't mean that there weren't sweet German kids who had the misfortune of being born in the 1920s yeah. and were conscribed into Hitler's army. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that there weren't scores of Japanese youth who were you know pretty indoctrinated into the Empire's way of thinking and Japanese superiority in Asia and. You know, there were a lot of poor SOBs on both sides who were dragged into the fight against their will. But the agendas of the powers that be were a very yeah. clear good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, and and by saying that, I'm not saying that soldiers who fought in the Korean War, Vietnam, the war in Iraq, I'm not saying that they weren't. Served any less honorably, yeah, fought exactly. any less bravely, sacrificed any those less. Those wars were a little bit yep. more those, messy and, those wars and hard were to understand. Politically motivated. Yes. Those, whereas, those, those were wars against mm-hmm. an ideology, whereas World War II was a war against multiple countries hell bent on world domination. Yeah. Big difference. But like I said before, um, we've covered World War II stories on this podcast before. We've never dedicated a whole episode to them. That's so true. We did. Um, I, I spoke about Hitler's um, obsession with the occult, specifically his werewolf army. Betty Pack, my girl, Woo! female spy. She was awesome. And the whole half-eaten children in Switzerland. You actually covered that on an episode. I, I think sure it was did. an unsolved mysteries or Probably. what was it's, it? It's actually kind of a kind of a. I don't want to see fa- say famous, but mm-hmm. as far as like the B sides of World War II history is concerned, that's definitely one. Uh, that's probably the weirdest story associated yeah. with World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get back to you guys on what episode that was because I guarantee I'm ar- I can already see the emails and the messages rolling in. Like, what episode was what episode that? Was it? Um, and I will I'll figure that out for you because I'm also interested in hearing it again because it was crazy. But today we are bringing more strange stories out of World War II, and Joey is first. Joey is up to bat. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Betty Peck. Because I liked listening to the Betty Pack story so much that I set out to get some information on one more somewhat famous, albeit recently, female spy. I love spies and I love female spies twice as much. we are all going to sit down by the fire here and grab yourself a nice hot cup of cocoa or whatever you got to grab, a crackling fireplace. Maybe there's even a babbling brook outside the window. beautiful. But we're going to talk about a real awesome woman by the name of... Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall. Love it. One incredible, intrepid, impossibly courageous woman. Any relation to Rebecca Hall, an actress I very much so enjoy. Her grandmother. Oh, my God. No, probably not. Go so, on. Virginia Hall, just a quick little backstory. Born in Baltimore in 1906. Baltimore. To Baltimore. Get this guy out of my crime scene. 
Uh, that was Michael C. Hall. Yeah, Michael C. Hall. Another yeah. Hall. Doing one of my favorite Baltimore <laughs> accents. Get some motor oil. Uh, so she she was born Water. in Baltimore in 1906 to a rather well-to-do family. Okay. Uh, unlike most women of her era, she was a college graduate. Whoa. She went to Radcliffe College in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was one of the biggest yes. women's liberal arts colleges. She continued her studies at Columbia University. Keep in mind, this is the 1920s. There are not many women going to college, let alone getting master's degrees. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she left school with an advanced degree in economics, and she also left school fluent in French, German, and Italian. Damn. Three languages you are going to want to speak if you are a spy in Europe during <laughs> World War II. Yeah. So after traveling across mainland Europe for several years, continuing her studies, she took a job as a clerk at the American Embassy in Warsaw, Poland in 1931 before she transferred to Turkey. In 1933, while on an expedition hunting birds, she tripped and accidentally shot herself in the left foot. The wound Damn. was so severe that she actually needed to have her leg amputated just below the knee. Ah. Yeah. So she was fitted with a wooden prosthetic that she affectionately named Cuthbert. Cuthbert. Her wooden leg Cuthbert. <laughs> I love that. If so, I ever need uh, an appendage replaced, you better, you better believe, believe I'm, I'm going to name it. it and name him something like Falcor, Ni- Nigel, <laughs> Nigel. If, yeah, Cuthbert just seemed very British. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so throughout the 1930s, she applied for numerous positions as a diplomat with the U.S. State Department, but all applications were rejected. There were very few women serving in ah, such positions. Okay. I was like, she seems super qualified, like, I feel but like she she's still qualified, has a vagina. But like, I forgot, got a vagina. You got periods. We can't handle you. You got one, that vagina. You got to get the, the fuck out. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's true. Bears will smell it. Bears can smell the menstruation. Exactly. Yeah. That's, a, that's a danger to everybody at the building. So in 1937, she was turned down for a State Department job because of an obscure rule which prohibited people with disabilities from serving as diplomats. Wow. In spite of the fact that the president at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ostensibly the biggest diplomat in the country, uh, was riddled with polio. Yeah. So different if you're a man and also a Roosevelt. Yeah. A little bit of money. Yeah. So by the time 1940 rolls around, Europe is embroiled in all-out war. So Virginia, an American, volunteered as an ambulance driver for the French army. Very wow. similar thing that uh, Ernest Hemingway did in World War I, volunteering as an ambulance driver in Italy. Following France's very quick defeat at the hands of Nazi Germany, I could go into the marginal line and how France screwed that up. Maybe World War II episode part de. <laughs> yeah. France went down like a sack of dirt. It happened really? in a matter of months. They made a one grand miscalculation and, uh, and they got outfoxed and they were out of the war pretty much immediately. So, uh, following France's very quick defeat, she escaped to Spain. While there, she met a British chap by the name of George Bellows, who was so impressed by her that he pulled some strings, contacted a friend, uh, a friend, a friend, contacted a friend, called his friend, contacted a friend in Britain's special operations executive, SOE, and got her a job as a spy. She was just the second woman accepted into the SOE, and she wasn't even British. Wow. After training, she was sent to Vichy, France. This is important for two reasons. One, Vichy, France was the post- 
fall of France government that was full of loyalists to Nazi Germany. These are essentially people who welcomed the Nazis with open arms, not welcomed their politics with open arms. The Vichy government was a French but Nazi sympathetic government yeah. who was ostensibly in charge for the overwhelming majority of France. You okay? actually taught me what Vichy France Vichy. was. Oui. And um, listeners, you would know about it because Betty Pack also exactly. worked with the Vichy. And a big reason French. why um, that uh, that it's important to note this. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first of all, it's, I, th- I think I should say the Vichy government was headed by a guy named Philippe Pétain. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, kind of ironic considering the fact that he was a French national war hero for his exploits in World War One while fighting against the Germans. Ah. So I guess when you introduce... Uh, the most extreme form of racism ever, that's when you win a guy like that over. So, second, uh, the open support of Nazi of the Nazis meant that, unlike the rest of France, Vichy France was unoccupied by German forces. So France is occupied by Germany, but because Vichy France is sympathetic to the Germans, they basically just have a French government with Vichy police officers, and they're like, this is a place where we don't need to be. We don't have to occupy this area. We've already taken it. It's ours. We've installed yeah, our we local government. On, we, we can, can move, move on, on to other places. So it's a great place for spies to operate. Yeah. Because you can pick up information from dumb, drunk French Vichy police officers who hear things from their connections, and you don't actually have to be in the middle of, say, like Nazi field forces, yeah. basically. The only Germans around are those on leave from the front, and they're too busy getting drunk or going to brothels to pay attention to such things. For right? sure. So she's based in Lyon. And her cover is that of a writer for the New York Post, which is a great thing for a spy to have, press credentials, because this gave her the ability to interview people, gather information, file stories with details useful to military planners. Uh, She shunned her chic Parisian wardrobe in ways to become inconspicuous, often quickly changing her makeup and appearance rapidly through makeup and disguise. And she was kind of like a, a master of disguise. She also wasn't just somebody who had a a, a silver tongue. She was also keen and prone to drastically change her appearance day to day. So cool. Very cool. So She's like the Ethan Hunt. Yeah. And she (laughs) was a fucking natural. She took to the spy game like few before her. Oftentimes forced to learn on her own in the field, she had a preternatural feel for the gig. Whom to bribe and when to bribe them. Arranging and managing contacts and the network through which she communicated. Codename Heckler. Because remember, these are the Brits. Yes. So you gotta say everything with a British accent. Heckler. Codename Heckler. (laughs) She was allegedly especially great at soothing the nerves of terrified, frazzled, paranoid agents. They'd come in like the walls are closing in and she would like reassure them in the cause and their abilities. And she was like a real leader. Nice. But her feel for the job extended beyond bribes and managing spies. She had an incredible spidey sense when it came to danger. So in late 41, Right before the bombing of Pearl Harbor brought her native USA into the war, she sensed danger ahead of a meeting with other SOE agents in Marseille. Just something about it wasn't sitting right with her in her gut. And she didn't even really have a good reason or concrete proof. It was seriously just a feeling. Women, man, listen to that gut. Listen to that intuition. That's why every spy team should be at least 50% comprised of women. Yeah. Yeah, just for the spidey sense. 
So uh, the meeting was indeed a setup, and a dozen SOE agents were captured by the Vichy police, which left Virginia as one of the few agents still at large in all of France within the SOE, and the only agent in France able to still make contact with the department heads in London. So everything in Vichy France, which is most of France, has to go through through her her before it can make it back to London. Wow. Yeah. So that winter was especially miserable for Virginia. Cut off from almost all of her contacts and allies, she once wrote to the SOE for the simple request of one bar of soap. That's how bad things got. She wrote requesting a bar of soap because she was starting to feel that her unwashed presentation was going to only in a matter of time become a major stumbling block for her to gain access. Yeah. Because she's living in poverty, mm-hmm. trying to uphold this cover as a New York Post uh, writer. And even though she's in Nazi-occupied France, you know, it was she was basically like, hey, if you want me to still be able to get to see people, you're going to have to help me take a bath. Yeah. And also, no one wants a smelly friend. No. Just in general. Yeah. Spy or not. Spy or not. Nobody no one wants, wants a, smelly a stinky friend. friend. And if you've ever been the stinky friend, I'm very sorry. <laughs> So, with her network uh, largely, albeit temporary, handicapped, she spent the majority of the winter and the ensuing spring aiding in the rescue and subsequent escape of numerous downed airline pilots who'd been told prior to their flight missions that if they indeed did get shot down over France to make their way to the American consulate in Lyon and to say that they were, quote, a friend of Olivier. Olivier, of course, being Virginia Hall. So with the help of a local brother owner, she hid, fed, and aided in the escape of dozens of downed wow. airmen shot down over France just over the course of that winter and spring. Remarkable. During this time, the French n- nicknamed her La Dame qui boite. My French is not excellent. Rusty. I apologize. Uh, it translates to the limping lady. The limping lady. Because of Cuthbert. Ah, yes. So it was also at this time that Nazi Germany put the limping lady on their most wanted list. They Uh had caught wind of the limping lady, and now they were all on the lookout for a woman trying to appear to be inconspicuous, walking with a noticeable limp. Yikes. She also didn't take any shit that Virginia Hall. I could already tell you that about her. I don't even know her. Nope. And she did not suffer fools kindly either. She avoided contact with one particular SOE agent sent to Lyon named George Dubois and refused to introduce him to her contacts. She regarded him as being amateurish and lax in his security protocols. When SOE headquarters directed that Dubois should supervise her and basically be her superior officer, she told them two words. The two words she telegrammed back were, lay off. <laughs> I was going to guess fuck off. I was very close. Lay off. Got to remember, she is a lady. She is a lady. Of the early it 20th is century. 1941. Lay off is her <laughs> yeah. fuck off. Well, remember those dozens of uh, that dozen SOE agents that were captured in Marseille? Yeah. Well, in July of 1942, Virginia Hall, along with a priest and the wife of one of the prisoners, were able to lead a jailbreak and escape, freeing all 12 of them. They eluded a massive German manhunt along the way. Miss Hall secured the safe houses, aided in the smuggling of tools and a radio into the into the prison, and helped all twelve spies make their way into neutral Spain and from there London. Can you imagine having this life? Just like 
real quick. Can you no imagine shit. having this life? I am about to have a panic attack because I have to get a CAT scan tomorrow. She's, I know. She's my, she's also, she's, I mean, I'm not that I'm old, but, she, or young for that matter, but she's, she's my age in this scenario. She's 36. Mm-hmm. She's a 36 year old woman in the middle of Incredible. the 20th century serving in the greatest conflict of all time, deep cover, occupied territory as a spy, freeing dozens of downed air pilots, freeing a dozen prisoners and colleagues of hers. And this is a, a, a an extremely educated woman who could do whatever she wanted. Any, literally anything she wanted. And Just this one is of what those she people, wanted. She could have never have heard of or seen baseball before and picked up a baseball bat. And by the end of the day, she would have been the best player on the field. Yeah. One and a half legs and all. Man, oh, man. Uh, the official historian of the SOE, a man by the name of M.R.D. Foote, God bless the English, <laughs> called the escape, quote, one of the most useful operations of its kind in the entirety of the war. Wow. Hitler and the Nazis were so furious with this jailbreak that they totally changed the way they did things in Vichy, France. This was the final straw. They sent 500 Gestapo agents, though that's German secret police, into Vichy to work with German intelligence in and around Lyon to try to, once and for all, stomp out the SOE and the the French resistance in the area. So Hall... She's now surrounded on all sides by the Germans. Uh, and they are also looking for a limping woman. So she could no longer count on her contacts within the French police either because the heat was just simply too hot. So with the Allied invasion of North Africa imminent, Hall once again, spidey sense kicked in. She correctly anticipated that Nazi Germany would move to reoccupy Vichy France. And she made it out less than a week before they did exactly that. Made her way into Spain, made her way to London from there. But if you want to know how she got there, she walked 50 miles in two days on one and a half legs, including but not limited to walking over a 7,500 foot high pass in the Pyrenees Mountains in November. So that's how she got herself out of German occupied France. We're halfway through the war. She's not done. Yeah. Upon returning to London, she requested to be sent back to France like a good soldier. Feeling that she had been compromised, however, the British refused and discharged her from service. Rather than call it a day, she, of course, now applied to be a part of the new American OSS, the Office uh, of Strategic Services, which is the predecessor to the CIA. Yes. They were impressed, quite in fact, and offered her a position as a spy slash wireless operator at an officer's pay grade and rank. Not too bad. So she essentially went basically from from working MI6 to to the CIA. CIA. Yeah. The MI6 was like, you're compromised. You're out. And she went, okay, CIA. And they went, you're in. You're an officer. Here's your new pay grade. Here's your new operation. Here's your new job. So they trained her to be a wireless operator and they sent her back to France. All right. So there's still a woman, 1943. So naturally, the CIA or the OSS at the time said that uh, a French man by the name of Henri Lasso should be sent along to essentially be her commanding officer mm-hmm. as she re-entered France. However, never one to take shit or put her life at risk because of some bureaucratic bullshit. Hall quickly distanced and separated herself entirely from Lasso, whom she regarded as too talkative and a security risk. She even instructed her contacts to not tell this guy where she was or where she was going. She just straight up ghosted. She went full on Ethan Hunt. I'm going to do this shit solo. This guy is going to get me killed. I'm out of here. 
and she did. She was just the fourth OSS agent of any gender or sexual orientation to enter occupied France. The wow. fourth. And she's a woman, and she's a civilian. And she has one and a half legs. One and a half legs. Again, still got one and a half legs, in case you forgot. Yeah. So, with the code name Diane... Hall's job was to blend in with the general public as a French civilian. Remember what I told about her commitment to character? Yeah. Well, she took it even further. She disguised herself as an old milkmaid. She went so far as to file down her teeth to better resemble a poor peasant woman of countryside France. She wore, she, she didn't, uh, she had, you know, she like accentuated what gray hairs she had. She like gave herself more artificial gray hairs. She changed her limp into like a senior citizen Yeah, shuffle. I was going to say that would be a good cover yep. for your limp too. Yep. Now you're just old. And- Started just wearing like peasant pants or yeah. like a peasant tunic mm-hmm. and just turned her wood leg limp into a shuffle, like an old, an old lady shuffle. Um, so she's real like... Uh, Dana Carvey, master of disguise here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's exactly that's who I exactly, would compare yeah. her to. She even did the Turtle Man. So uh, once she had successfully blended into the uh, general populace and had been accepted by the Germans in the area as just being one of the locals, her primary task was to arm and train local resist- guerrilla resistant groups ahead of the Allied invasion at Normandy on June 6, 1944. So just brief side note from from Virginia Hall here, ahead of the D-Day invasion, June 6, 1944, that whole big, you've seen Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. the beaches, Omaha, Utah, you know all about it. If you don't know, behind the scenes in the days ahead, and especially in the overnight, June 5th into June 6th, ahead of the invasion, the French resistance was going off the chains. The French resistance was doing all kinds of crazy guerrilla shit behind the scenes blowing up railway lines, blowing up bridges, just killing shitloads of farm animals and leaving them in roads to create giant roadblocks just to delay German troop transport and supply lines, just frustrating them, basically. And uh, Virginia Hall's fingerprints are all over all of that. She was responsible for organizing, arming, and training the majority of the French resistance in the area at that time. She is a pretty fucking awesome lady. So after successfully aiding the Allies at their D-Day invasion at Normandy, again, like I said, blowing up railway lines, blowing up bridges, all of that stuff, she did the same exact thing ahead of Operation Dragoon, which was the Allies' invasion of southern France and Provence specifically just a couple months later. Once again, never one to take any shit. She openly complained in letters to the OSS about difficulties she was having asserting herself and the OSS's orders above the self-proclaimed, quote, colonels leading the various resistance groups. Basically, a bunch of pig-headed French dudes who were like, but that woman cannot be in charge. Mm-hmm. So what did she do? She wrote, and she said, you send people out ostensibly to work with me and for me, but you don't give me any of the necessary necessary authority. So she takes matters into her own hands, and she successfully procured three full cargo planes full of guns, supplies, ammunition, food, most important among them for all of these resistance guys. And they were basically like, all right, you're okay. For- all right, you're okay, Diane. <laughs> yeah, you're okay. You're okay. Book. All right, where are we going? So basically, she was like, if you're to the OSS, she was like, if you're not going to get these people to fucking follow my lead, 
you leave me no choice but to do my own shit. So she illegally procured three supply planes to fly to where she was to supply these rebels with shit. And she was like, now am I in charge? And they were like, yeah, you're in charge. Okay. Thanks for the cognac. You're in charge. So with nearly three battalions of resistance fighters under her command, they successfully drove the Germans entirely out of the Loire Valley in France, which helped pave the way for the larger advancing U.S. and British soldiers, which pushed Nazi Germany out of France entirely. Wow. Yeah. So not too shabby. With not France at all. Now free of the Nazis, she briefly moved on to Austria. There was a burgeoning anti- anti-Nazi movement going on in Hitler's home country. Mm-hmm. So her job was to basically go there and fan the flames. Yeah. To just go there and incite people. And uh, very shortly thereafter- it's like Katniss Everdeen. Yeah, exactly. So uh, very shortly thereafter, old Mr. Hitler, the coward, uh, killed himself. Mm-hmm. The war in Europe was over. And so was Virginia Hall's service in the European theater. Wow. Following the war, she was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross in 1945, one of the highest honors available in the entirety of the American military. She is the only female civilian in World War II to receive that award. She was also made an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire and was awarded the Croix de Guerre by the nation of France. President Harry Truman wanted to make a big spectacle of her Distinguished Service Medal, really for her and for like the PR Mm -hmm. moment, you know, yeah, politician at the end of the day. But she declined. And her reason for declining was that she was, quote, still fully operational and most anxious to get busy. Uh, She she wasn't done fighting. She was like, somebody out there needs fighting and I want to go do it. Yeah. And I don't want you to blow my cover by putting my picture on the. No shit. I don't want to be smiling, shaking the president's hand because I don't want to stop. I'll do that when I retire. Yeah. I don't want to stop being a spy. So in 1947, Virginia Hall became one of the first women to join the CIA, where she worked as an analyst specializing in gathering intelligence on the Soviet Union's incursion and influence into its surrounding countries. Following 18 years of service in the CIA, a time in which Howard Hunt, CIA of future Watergate fame, uh, suggested that she was a colossal pain in the ass <laughs> for the entirety of the agency's many Good. non-combat bureaucrats. Yeah. All the CIA suits. Anybody who had actually seen shit in World War II was like, she's the best. Yeah. And all of these career bureaucrats, all the fortunate sons, so mm-hmm. to speak, they all wanted to get rid of her. Right. Because who's this fucking loudmouth lady telling me I'm doing a bad job? Basically, but she stuck it out for 18 years and only retired from the CIA because the CIA then had a rule that if you hit age 60, retirement was mandatory. So she literally served as long as she could. She married a former OSS field colleague of hers. Oh, in 1957, cute. and they remained happily married for 25 years until her death in 1982. 82. She, she lived for 76 years. Not bad wow. for a spy no. with one and a half legs. But there's one last little thing everybody should know about Virginia Hall. And it's like, in spite of the fact that, you know, we said a lot of not so nice things about the CIA over the years on this podcast, oh, but they got this thing right. Okay. In 2016, well, first of all, there is now a field agent training facility named after her, the Virginia Hall Expeditionary Center. But the big thing is 
the CIA museum gives five operatives in the history of the CIA. It gives five operatives individual sections in its catalog. Mm -hmm. Four of them were men who at one time or another were the heads of the CIA. Yeah. And the fifth is Virginia Hall. Wow. Love her. Obsessed with her. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. So I left out a lot of really cool shit just for the sake of of time. Mm -hmm. So if anybody does want to go on a deep dive, Virginia Hall is an absolutely fascinating character whose exploits were largely anonymous until very recently. Like only within the last 30 years has anybody really started to piece together everything that Virginia Hall was involved in it sounds as though she was in the same areas that betty was operating in around the same time because she was in vichy france right before um africa Mm -hmm. as well um and i'm glad to hear that she got the recognition that she did betty pack unfortunately did not and that's because her spying involved a lot of what uh, doing what needed to be done. Doing what needed to be done, which in her case um, involved sex, and and some people view that as prostitution, and so she didn't get. Yeah, well, nobody had a problem viewing it as uh, not prostitution when she was helping the Allies win the war. Yeah, when she was sending like yeah. codes that literally no one yeah. else could fucking get. Yeah, when she was saving the lives of thousands of enlisted men by letting certain departments know that a bombing was imminent nobody Mm -hmm. had a problem with her methods yeah no one had a problem with her fucking only after victory was in hand did everybody strap their puritanical bullshit back on to cast her out of her deserved recognition yeah virginia hall not bad i need a world war ii movie focusing on female spies but a good i want to see betty please make it just make a virginia hall i want to follow them both i want to see their their exploits i need to know more yeah let Catherine bigelow direct it make it make it gritty as fuck yeah yeah i want to see the warts i don't want that stand up and cheer in the aisles feel good hollywood bullshit Mm -hmm. i want to see a spy do what a spy needs to do yeah yeah well um thank Your you turn, joe boo-boo. that was wonderful hey, thank thanks. you for teaching me about another hot hot lady hot hot lady so by now pretty much everyone in the country and definitely everyone who listens to this podcast is familiar with the ufo reports and events that the pentagon declassified this year last year in 2020 yeah the tic-tac-shaped objects zipping around our navy and air force pilots Well, you may be surprised to know that this isn't a new phenomenon. Actually, we've been experiencing this almost since the beginning of our flying history. Yep. Everyone is familiar with the band Foo Fighters, whose front man is Dave Grohl, formerly drummer for, uh, sorry, formerly the drummer for Nirvana. But a lot of people. I got another confession to make. I don't like that song, but I I do like Monkey Wrench. But a lot of people don't know that Foo Fighters are an actual phenomenon. So these strange flying objects were reported all through World War II, but the airmen of the 415th Night Fighter Squadron had extensive experiences with them that totally changed their lives. Mm. Lieutenant Fred... Ringwald was the first to see one, or at least the first report that we know. First to have the balls to report it. Yeah, he was riding as an observer in a night fighter piloted by Lieutenant Ed Schluter, and Lieutenant Donald J. Myers was on radar. It was November of 1944, and late in the evening, they were flying over the, uh, sorry, Rhine Valley. 
the Rhine. Okay, just making sure. They were flying over the Rhine Valley on Western the, Germany. Yeah, on the French German border when Ringwald said, I wonder what those lights are over in the hills. There were about eight to ten lights in a row glowing a fiery orange. Then Schluter saw them off his right wing. They checked with the Allied forces ground radar, but they registered nothing on the ground. They weren't seeing anything on their radar. Obviously, they thought that it was some sort of German air weapon, so they prepared for battle. And Schluter turned the plane around to fight, only for the lights to completely vanish. At first, the men said nothing. They were afraid that they would be ostracized. But then the sighting started happening to others in that unit. In December of that year, a pilot was flying at approximately 800 feet when he saw five or six flashing red and green lights in a T-shape. The lights followed him, closing in to their 8 o'clock and 1,000 feet before disappearing. Now, that was December 17th, and on December 22nd, two more flight crews sighted the lights. One crew reported two lights in a large orange glow seeming to rise from the earth before reaching 10,000 feet and tailing the fighter pilot for two full minutes before peeling off, turning away, and then returning to fly level with the plane for a few minutes and then zipping off. Holy shit. The pilot said they appeared to be under perfect control at all times. Then there was Lieutenant Samuel Kasny's experience. He saw the craft very clearly. He said it was a wingless, cigar-shaped object. There you go. Tic-tac. First instance, cigar. (laughs) Yeah. Glowing red and only a few yards off the plane's wingtip. A few yards? Yards. It was flying right next to his fucking plane. Lieutenant Krasny was understandably terrified. Yeah. He instructed the pilot to take evasive maneuvers, but the glowing object stayed right next to the jet for several minutes. Not a jet. Before a it flew off. Plane. There's yes. No, I got to remember, no gotta jets remember. yet. That's, no I, jets. I don't mean to be a, a dick, but that's an important thing. That's a, because no jet technology on planet Earth means that this these Foo Fighters are even more incredible yes. to these guys because we don't even have jets yet. Yeah. These are all propeller planes. Yeah, so it, it stayed right next to the plane, yep. thank you, for several minutes before it, quote, flew off and disappeared. Now, eventually the sightings became so regular that the pilots named them Foo Fighters, and they got this name from a comic strip that was popular during World War II called Smokey Stover. Really? Yeah, which in which Smokey was it was a character who's a firefighter who would often declare where there's foo there's fire. Uh, and that's where foo fighters foo, came from. Interesting. And I don't know I why it must have been just something they were reading a lot of. That's amazing. Yeah. A brief non sequitur. GIs of the era had a, a very bizarre habit of naming things after cartoons. Oh yeah. That's absolutely. also that's where that's where the word jeep comes from. Those vehicles, because they were the first all-terrain vehicles, they could uh-huh. like drive through riverbeds and stuff like that. They could go everywhere. And in the old Steamboat Willie cartoons, he used to have a sidekick that was kind of a weird, nondescript creature that could like climb up walls, walk on water, and his name was Jeep. So oh, that's wow. so that's why those vehicles that can seemingly drive anywhere were called Jeeps. Wow. Also after a cartoon. Anyway, continue. I love that. Me too. So in January of 1945, the Associated Press broke the story of the Foo Fighters and the specific squadron, along with a slew of theories about what they were seeing. 
The sightings were flares. The sightings were weather balloons. The sightings were St. Elmo's fire. The which... German V2 rockets yep, I've heard before. That's yep. the next one. Yeah. Uh, I know I've talked about that on the show before, but St. Elmo's fire is basically a phenomenon when light appears on the tips of objects in stormy weather. It happens a lot on ships at sea. It's also a really bad 80s movie. It's also a, a not-so-great 80s movie. That's also... Uh, <laughs> Rob Lowe is downright unwatchable in that movie. I've as much as we it. love Chris Traeger in Parks and Recreation, <laughs> he is... As that as good as he is in that, he's that believe. bad in St. Elmo's Fire. Well, Continue. can't win them all. Yeah, so uh, the members of the 415th rejected all of those theories. First of all, flares and weather balloons can't track planes like these objects could, and they would also show up on ground radar. The only thing that wouldn't show up on ground radar that they knew of was light itself. So like St. Elmo's Fire, that would make sense. But all these men had seen St. Elmo's fire before and knew what it looked like. Yeah, that's the thing. These, this, this isn't these their first time men. in the air. These yeah. are fucking World War II fighter pilots. <laughs> yeah. Then people started saying, oh, well, these men are suffering from combat fatigue, basically saying they're so stressed out, they're hallucinating. Basically anything but what these guys anything, actually said. Yeah, anything but believing what they were saying. These 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 military, because you have to be an officer to be a pilot. Mm -hmm. You can't just be a grunt to be a pilot. You're yeah. an officer, which means you basically have at least um, uh, an officer's education, which of the era was basically a college education. Yeah. So these aren't just some grunts. These are officers. Mm-hmm. Who are saying they're seeing this crazy shit, and and we're just coming up and with anything like, other well, than probably... what these combat-hardened military officers are saying happened. Well, psychologists at the time and that have researched it since then say that there's no evidence to suggest they were suffering from collective psychosis or mass hysteria. They were described as very normal airmen whose primary interest was combat, and after that came pinup girls, poker, donuts, and wine. These weren't wackos. They these weren't conspiracy theorists. And these are guys who just wanted to go kill some Nazis and go and, get laid. Yeah, exactly. They were just men, and the men also never claimed, much like many people throughout history who have been ostracized or attacked for reporting UFOs, that these lights were extraterrestrial in any way. The right. public put those words in their mouth. All they said was, I saw some weird shit outside my cockpit. And it scared me because these men were mostly fearful. It was late breaking German technology. Right. And it should be noted that the military took these sightings very seriously, also believing it could be unknown German technology. Yep. And upon investigation, found that the German and Japanese pilots had reported similar sightings. So all types of pilots in this war were, were experiencing these Foo Fighters. The United States pilots, as well as the European fighters, reported no aircraft had been attacked by one of these balls of fire. They said that their behavior did not seem threatening. But now it's 2021, and we know for a fact Germany did not have this technology because they don't have it today. <laughs> right. And we can take Werner von Braun's word for it. Yeah. Werner was, at the time, a 32-year-old Wunderkind rocket engineer. He's the man who helped the Nazis develop the V-2 rocket, that as was Joe his, was saying. That was his program. That was his program. The V-2 rocket was the most lethal military anything that had been created that had ever to been that made. point. No incendiary or explosive device could travel half the distance or half the speed of a V-2 rocket. It was what Hitler was using in 1944. It was a long-range guided ballistic missile. And this was actually, like you said, a big, quote, explanation for the Foo Fighters. It would totally explain the cigar-shaped 
except wingless planes and even the glow, and they were always seen near or over occupied Nazi Germany. But, not so much, the V-2 rocket does not have much maneuverability. It definitely would not change direction and fly off yeah, away from the planes. it's not, pi- it's not a planes. drone. It's not being piloted. Yeah. It also wouldn't continue to burn and glow the entire time. It would burn, produce thrust once, and basically sail to its destination. We've all seen a rocket. And a V-2 rocket is also so much faster than any kind of propeller plane. Even a P-51 Mustang, fastest thing we have. It wouldn't fly next to It wouldn't be able to fly abreast of a P-51. It would just go screaming right past it Mm because it's a fucking rocket. Yeah, uh, von Braun says nothing in Nazi Germany's military aviation arsenal can explain the Foo Fighter flight patterns. He commented on it himself and said, we did not have that. Right. And I know. Uh, Fun fact, I know that Joe knows this, but maybe some of our listeners don't. Werner von Braun was recruited to be part of Operation Paperclip, which was where the U.S. military spared 1,600 Nazi scientists from prosecution for war crimes and brought them to the American military and told the public, you know, that they we rescued them. And then we found out later, like, no, they were Nazis. Um, but von Braun became involved with NASA, became the chief architect on Saturn V, which was the rocket that sent Neil Armstrong and the Apollo 11 crew to the moon. And he has said that if anyone, Germany, the Soviets, anyone had technology like this in 1944, they would have capitalized on it by now. And he was saying that in, you know, 1960 something or weaponized it. And this is why I have to say. So last episode, Joe, I know you listened to it, the Disney episode. I plugged UFO on Showtime. It's that four part documentary. But after finishing it, I can't say I can plug it anymore. Um, because it was kind of all over the place and simultaneously being like, this can't be the military. We don't have this technology. And then saying it's absolutely the military. These sightings are military testing. And they were trying to say that everything from the Phoenix lights to the released footage from the Pentagon was military testing. And that is such bullshit. Yeah. Talk about, talk about tripping and falling head over heels into the rabbit hole. One, these sightings happen all over the world. So the American military have been testing this technology since at least 1944, yeah. and they do it in every single country in spite without of the fact, worrying yeah. about those countries getting a hold of this technology. No shit. Yeah, yeah. We've got this new tech. It's not like UFO sightings only happen in this fucking country, you idiots. Mm -hmm. Like the U.S. military or intelligence or whatever would risk a malfunction and having some super futuristic craft go down in Russia or China. Yeah. Give me a fucking break. Makes no sense. Or are you saying that almost every single country has this technology? No, everybody has it. And they're all testing it. It's just absurd. Everybody has it, but somehow no one on the planet knows anything about it. It's way more absurd to me to, to say that we have this technology and we're using it publicly than to say that it's extraterrestrial. It is so much more likely that this is extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings than it is the various governments of the world having this technology and successfully keeping it a secret while not commoditizing it yeah. for 75 years. Yeah. Kiss my dick. <laughs> Kiss my dick. That doesn't make any fucking sense at all. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it's not extraterrestrial. Maybe it's literally a biological life form that we haven't discovered yet. Sure. But I Al- can tell you what it's realistic. not. I can tell you what it's not. Yeah. Fucking Biden. 
Yeah, I've seen how the United States government handles a pandemic. Yeah, they're not going to handle. I don't. I don't believe in their technology. ability to keep this shit a secret while also choosing to not profit from it yeah. for seventy five years. While also showing it to us and yeah. having video proof. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so that is the origin of Foo Fighters. Uh, UFOs are real. Get used to it. Yeah, I like get, how you got kind of shitty with it. Get used to it. Get it through your get head. Get it through your thick skull. It's here to stay, it's baby. Here. All right, I think it's my turn again. You ready? Yeah, I'm gonna, so ready. Gonna hit you right in your brain's brain. My the, brain's brain. Your inner brain. The inner part of the brain. Not really. This is just oh, okay. a fun story that I uh, that I wanted to talk about because, again, until fairly recently, this is something that was uh, pretty obscure. Okay. I also tried really hard to steer clear of combat stuff as uh-huh. much as I love that stuff. Yeah. I also understand for your audience, you know, lots of people in the world are much more well-adjusted than I am, uh-huh. and they're deeply bothered by true stories of scores of people dying. Yeah. So I tried to come up with something a little bit more lighthearted. Okay. So now, obviously, Sun Tzu, famed Chinese general and author of The Art of War, once said that all war is based on deception. Appearing weak when you're strong, far when you're near, mobile when seemingly immobile. It's about keeping your opponent on their toes at all times. World War II proved to be no different as the world's forces and intelligence agencies used any means necessary at their disposal to gain any advantage over their enemy. The United States used fluent-speaking Navajo Native Americans to be code talkers in the Pacific Theater because you couldn't crack the Navajo language. Mm -hmm. Only Navajo Native Americans can speak or understand Navajo. You could even take other Native American groups. If the Japanese were somehow able to round up a bunch of Apache, Comanche, Cherokee, and Iroquois Native Americans somehow and say, what is this Native American saying? They'd say, we have no fucking idea. We have no idea. idea we're not Navajo. Yeah, so that is obviously, that's one instance of it. They also recruited famous people of note to serve as spies in every conceivable theater or country of operations, the United States being no different. But the most audacious and noteworthy of these deceptive tactics was the establishment and deployment of a group known as the Ghost Army. Ooh. It sounds really Real fucking Real spooky. Badass. Here's the thing. It's kind of not. Right. But it's also totally badass in a non-traditional badass Cool. Way. I love it. All right. This is so secretive. Is this nerdy badass? It, yeah. <laughs> this remained a secret for 40 years oh, after wow. the end of World War II. So in early 1944, we're six months from the D-Day and ally, uh, D-Day Allied invasion of France. Mm-hmm. The war's end result is still very much hanging in the balance right. here. A unit of roughly 1,100 men are cobbled together, most of them being distinguished artists, set designers, engineers, and clothing designers. They're brought together to form the 23rd HQ Special Troops, a secret unit. Included in the unit were men like Bill Blass, a famous American fashion designer, uh, famous painters Ellsworth Kelly and Arthur Singer, and famous photographer Art Kane. Many more were recruited from art schools, advertising this is agencies. This ragtag yeah. team. Other creative occupations that encouraged creative thinking. They had the highest I- collective IQ of any unit in the armed forces. Their oh average IQ is 120. And for wow. the military, that's fucking high. So their mission was not to attack, 
bombard, defend. It wasn't to tend to wounded soldiers. Their job was to serve as the most elaborate decoy unit in the history of war. I love it. Inspired by several small successes enjoyed by the British forces at El Alamein in Egypt several years prior, their unit was designed to essentially function as a fake army. They did it with inflatable tanks. Yes! Hundreds of them. I saw a picture of yes. one. Inflatable tanks, inflatable artillery pieces, inflatable aircraft, inflatable everything, backed by the sound of marching troops down to the small, minute sounds of soldiers just shooting the breeze on duty, being blasted out from the largest speakers ever created with messages sent to fake units with the intent that enemy codebreakers would stumble upon them, decipher them, and be significantly misled by yeah. them. And also just spend all that time yes. cracking these codes yes. and getting to the bottom of this and then following the lead yes. only to be misled. That's fucking awesome. So the 23rd HQ Special Troops Unit was broken into four smaller subunits, each with a specific role to play in the deception operations. The first and probably the most famous of them is the 603rd Camouflage Engineer Battalion. These are the guys who are responsible for creating the rubber inflatable tanks, planes, artillery pieces, other physical props. The idea, obviously, to dupe the Germans, both aircraft flying above and forward observers crawling up secretly to Spy on the enemy lines to trick them into thinking that they had more armor and personnel to maintain and run them than they really did. Every one of the hundreds of pieces of fake warfare were light enough to be carried by just a couple men. They all weighed 93 pounds apiece, but they were perfect replicas of the real 32-ton counterparts. To the point where if you were even like 100 feet away, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Wow. That close. They were Perfect. Because again, they were created by some of the most brilliant creative minds of the day. Artists, Artists. set designers, sculptors, guys who were used to molding different materials and really, really, really fascinating shit. All right. This 1,100-man unit was capable of giving off the impression that they were part of a force as large as 30,000 soldiers. Wow. An entire division. So then the second group, 3132 Signal Service Company, experts in sonic deception. These guys were tasked with producing and playing a wide variety of sounds, again, from troop and vehicle movements to little bits of dialogue between two soldiers. They recorded the sounds of tanks going uphill and the sounds of tanks going downhill because they knew that a trained observer could be could tell the difference in the sound a tank makes when it goes uphill versus downhill. So they made sure to record them both. Wow. That's the kind of attention to detail. They uh, recorded the sound effects of soldiers building pontoon bridges, even down to little things like sergeants yelling at a private to put out that damn cigarette. Just little things like having some guy come in and go, put out that damn cigarette. Make it as believable as possible. That's like if you ever watch a movie these days where where there's a large crowd of people, but they use CGI to make the crowd as opposed to having actual people there. Even if you're watching and you don't quite notice it, something's off. Yes. And then you watch something like Close Encounters where if they have a crowd of a thousand people, that means a thousand thousand people are there. Yeah. And there's such a difference. Yes. Yes. So whatever you can do to make it as realistic as possible, you do it. You do it. Exactly. Well said. I love it. 
a wider range of sound effects at their disposal. Now, here's something that's really cool, and this is could, could constitute as quote unquote weird, I yeah. guess. Uh, the sounds were recorded at Fort Knox on transcription discs, which were akin to like giant records. However, they'd sometimes skip. Yeah. So once they were in the theater, the audio had to be transferred to a wire recorder, which was a predecessor to magnetic tape, which was the first uh, recorded instance of multi-track recording. So the wow. first instant instance of multi-track recording ever was by the Ghost Army in World War II. Why don't we have a Ghost Army movie? Uh, uh, I need pro- a movie with Virginia Hall and we, Betty Pack. I need a Ghost we'll Army movie. We'll probably get a Ghost Army okay. movie. They already made Monuments Men. So mm-hmm. if they made Monuments Men about those uh, intellectuals, part of the military, who were trying to recapture the, famous works yeah, of art that Nazi art. Germany mm-hmm. had stolen from everywhere they'd been, fucking Nazi pigs, excuse me. So they would mix the sound effects to give the deception that they were trying to pull off, and they'd broadcast them again over 500-pound speakers. speakers. ever made. <laughs> yep, the ba- half-track speakers, each one of these speakers weighed 500 pounds. Wow. So it wasn't enough, though, that they were to just record and replay these sounds. The sonic unit had to make sure that the enemy heard it. So to that end, technicians at Bell Labs, who worked extensively, as you mentioned in the preamble to this episode, they were heavily involved in everything tech that -hmm. went on in World War II. They developed the firing tables like those used for artillery batteries to allow the Ghost Army to adjust the sound of their podcasts to reach specific distances, effectively dialing in their radio barrage the same way that artillery cannons would dial in their mortar fire. Wow. They could adjust it. They could say like, okay, we know there's an enemy HQ exactly 16 miles from here. So go ahead and adjust the speakers. We're going to blast it to 16.2 miles so that they hear this message perfectly and are thrown off by it. Okay. So last, the last of the four units, the 406 Combat Engineers Company, their job was to provide physical security for the unit. They dug the emplacements for the inflatables. And as the Ghost Army's deceptions became more elaborate, they got in the action and helped flesh out the ruse. They made fake division patches and engineer members would wear these fake patches go into the local town, have drinks, and talk loosely and loudly for any listening ears. Mm-hmm. Any of their spies yep, that might exactly. be there. So they're going out there and they're disinforming amongst the general public. They're masquerading as infantry or artillery uh, GIs from different units talking about these maneuvers and blah, blah, blah. So again, deception at every turn of the bend. These soldiers would obviously spread this information in the hopes that German spies and collaborators would be listening. And here's the thing. They always were. Yeah. So they were getting misled by the ghost army constantly. Um, Signal Company Special. uh, These guys were highly skilled radio and Morse code operators. They were recruited from units all over the army. Basically, they were the best radio and Morse operators, the uh, radio operators the army had to offer. Their requirement was that be was that they be the most skilled. So they what they would do is they would study another Morse code operator's sending style and they could imitate it perfectly. Wow. So that any Germans who were listening to one Morse code operator say like, this is the 17th regiment and it was actually the 17th regiment and like, meet us, blah, 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 blah. The Germans would hear that and then the imitator would hop on and be like, scratch that, change of plans, meet us at, and they'd send this Morse to nowhere. 
but they'd be perfectly imitating the previous Morse code operator style. So they would essentially be saving the bacon of other units in the area who weren't aware that they were being listened to. They would like chime in and save their lives. Wow. And say, oh, no, wait, we got you got to imitate that guy perfectly because they're about to get surrounded. It's crazy to me that Morse code operators had styles. Right. You know what I mean? Because you would think Morse code is like, okay, this nope, is a, that's a B. it's the same every that's time. A, that's yeah. the number four. But no, that's how skilled these guys were. They could pick wow. up on their exact, it's like picking up the exact playing style of a guitar. Yeah. You know, a guy, one guy could play a G and you'd be like, that's so-and-so playing yeah. that Yeah, these are chord, like savants. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, they were so good at deception that they oftentimes fooled allied forces themselves. So during one of them, they're playing audio sounds of a bunch of tanks and a colonel from an adjacent unit rolls up on them at night and yells, what are all these goddamn tanks doing here? Nobody said anything about there being tanks here. And the ghost army soldier said, sir, we don't have any tanks here. And the colonel basically yelled at them like, don't tell me that crap. I know a tank when I hear a tank, you know, (laughs) and they, and they were like, but they couldn't tell them what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They even, they even Part built of the fi- Allied forces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they even built fake airstrips that Allied pilots would l- land their planes on and be like, where the fuck am I? This isn't an airfield. And they'd be like, uh, you have to go. Yeah. We're doing something secret here. <laughs> uh, so from 1944 until the war's end, the 23rd HQ special troops served all across Europe from Normandy, France to Belgium, Luxembourg, the Rhine River in Germany. They conducted more than 20 deception operations, but their greatest success came during Operation Viersen, in which this unit of craftsmen, artisans, and artists conned the German military into thinking that 1,100 men, excuse me, They conned the German military into thinking that two divisions, 30,000 Allied soldiers, were going to cross a particular part of the Rhine River to enter Germany itself. So this is a quick backstep here. This is a pivotal moment in the war. Nazi Uh Germany has, for the first time since they invaded Poland, they've been forced back within their own borders. So now they are essentially protecting Germany. Right. It's no longer about holding on to the co- the territories they have taken over. Now it's about making sure that their own country isn't defeated once and for all. Yeah. So this is a pivotal moment. The crossing of the Rhine is like the crossing of the Rubicon in Rome. It symbols that like there's no going back. We're in Germany. This is the most pivotal point of the war in Europe. Okay? Okay. So they convinced all of the German forces in the area that 30,000 troops are going to cross at a certain point. So the Germans allocated what limited forces they had at their disposal to hold a position against what they assumed was 30,000 men. Sick with 600 tanks and artillery pieces along with them, which was in actuality barely a thousand artists and sound engineers. So the Ghost Army used their fake unit patches and bumper markings on their vehicles. They used the sonic deception. They do everything. It was so convincing that they actually began to draw fire Whoa. from the Germans at this point. However, the Germans thought that they were opposing a much larger force, so they're only firing from afar. It's like mortars coming from a mile away. Yeah. Or like small arms fire from snipers coming from like 2,000 yards away. But nonetheless, it's real enough that they're drawing sniper fire Mm -hmm. from guys at this point. And because of this, the entirety of the 30th and 79th Infantry Divisions, 30,000 actual combat soldiers 
across the Rhine River, 20 miles to the north, virtually unopposed. Yeah. Zero resistance whatsoever, which spearheaded the attack into Germany itself, capturing thousands of German soldiers along the way, dozens of German cities, and ending the war in Europe. Wow. Because what limited German forces were available went to all this one place to oppose what they thought were 30,000 battle hardened combat badasses and just turned out to be fashion designers and sound engineers <laughs> and the greatest ruse of the American army God, in the entirety I love of the war. It. So, in all across their 20 operations, three men from the Ghost Army died in combat. And they're wow. believed to have saved the lives of anywhere between fifteen to 30,000 Americans wow. just by making sure that the German military was in the wrong place at the right time. Love it. And that's the ghost army. I love it. Not what I thought it would be. No, not at all. You thought they were going to be like the inglorious bastards, right? <laughs> no, Slipping I, in behind lines and slitting I thought throats. It was, when you said you were covering the ghost army to me, I assumed it was something that soldiers reported seeing, because this is something that happens uh, a lot in yeah. war, uh, reports of seeing soldiers that are dressed for a different war. Dressed for a war a hundred years earlier. Yeah. yeah. When they're like soldiers in Vietnam saying that they, they were approached by a civil Civil War soldier in Vietnam. It's yeah, I don't almost know how that works. But. Well, it's almost like a like a brotherhood, you know, like uh, military men and how sure. their soul relates to each sure. other. It's a very strong bond, much like brotherhood. Well, yep. and, and no, no, no one, no one knows what war is like exactly, it, uh, except for people who have been there. Yeah, if you've been there, you know, and if you haven't, you don't have you an idea. You couldn't imagine. Yep. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of soldiers have, have, have said that, that they've been approached and had conversations and in, in dreamlike states, but still being like, it was so real. Sure. And why? A lot of guys in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan have said that lately, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan have had a lot of run-ins with interesting things. Anyways, so that's what I assume the ghost army would be, would be like actual like guys saying that they saw ghosts, but this is... So much cooler. I thought you were going to say you thought it was going to be like uh, Aragorn's army of dead guys in Return of the King. Yeah, I know all about that. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> well, okay. My last thing for today. Um, basically, now that I've told you there's no way Nazi Germany had this technology, let me tell you about some crazy Nazi futuristic technology. Maybe, maybe they did. Maybe they did, though. <laughs> But it's not hard to understand why people would think this at the time. The Germans introduced the world's first operational rocket fighter, jet fighter, cruise missile, ballistic missile. And this was all between the spring and fall of 1944. Like yeah, they, they were, were coming humming. out with some crazy shit. And, you know, I, I know that if I was alive at the time, I'd be like, holy shit, this is witchcraft. Like, how are they doing this? This is crazy. Um, the U.S. Air Force was definitely concerned. If they had begun firing these rockets earlier, they could have really taken control and uh, we could have lost, especially with the Nazis' propaganda minister, uh, Joseph, Joseph Goebbels. Joseph Goebbels. Stoking the fear flames a year earlier, claiming that Hitler had Wunderwaffen or uh, miracle weapons that would turn the tide. That's what they were saying. He had all these crazy weapons that you couldn't imagine. What more could they have? Because we've seen these, you know, jet fighters. We've seen these ballistic missiles. What else could they have? So obviously when the Foo Fighters started appearing, that was fucking scary. 
But there's one device that some people still believe exists. And boy, is it terrifying. It's called the D-Gluck. D-Gluck. It's also known as the Nazi bell, which is referring to its shape. Apparently, the existence of the bell was discovered from reading some transcripts from an interrogation of former Nazi SS officer Jacob Sporenberg. Polish author Igor Witkowski claimed he was shown these classified transcripts in August of 1997 by an unnamed Polish intelligence contact who said he had access to the Polish government documents. Witkowski maintained he was only allowed to transcribe the documents and was not allowed to make any copies. Wow. So allegedly, this was an experiment carried out by the Third Reich scientists working for the SS in a German facility known as Der Ries, or the Giant, which was close to the Czech border. This was a codename for a construction proje- project that was supposedly seven underground structures located in the Owl Mountains in what is today Poland. The mythos behind it is that there were all these crazy underground facilities that were high-tech, top of the line, the place all the Nazis made their crazy weapons, possibly even part of the Fuhrer headquarters. But in reality, none of them were finished. All of them are in different states of completion with only a few small tunnels reinforced by concrete. Okay. And these tunnels were all dug via forced labor, all prisoners of war and prisoners of the concentration camps that, that dug these um, tunnels. But honestly, today it seems that it was just another one of Hitler's over-the-top plans that just didn't pan out. Yeah. Anyway, back to the weapon. The bell. The bell. What did the bell do? So a lot of what we know comes from a guy named Nick Cook. He was the CEO of a defense industry consultant firm called Dynamix. He's a British former aviation journalist, and his most famous work is a book called The Hunt for Zero Point, which detailed a 10-year investigation he did to try and find evidence of anti-gravity technology testing. So all the people and places in the world and history that have attempted to create an anti-gravity machine. So the bell is described as being a device made out of a hard, heavy metal, approximately 9 feet wide and 12 to 15 feet high and being shaped like a bell. It contained two counter-rotating cylinders, which would be filled with a mercury-like substance that was violet in color. This metallic liquid was codenamed Zerum 525 and was stored in a tall, thin thermos flask a meter high encased in lead. Wow. Apparently, this thing was supposed to be an anti-gravity craft or an anti-gravity producing machine, but what it definitely did do was emit crazy strong radiation that led to the death of several unnamed scientists and various plant and animal test subjects. Whoa. So even like the guys who were working on it and developing it were dying because of it. Yikes. When the caves at Winsless were searched, the ruins of a large metal framework along with a crater were found, and a lot of people theorized that this was once a test rig for the bell. Huh. But others dismissed the structure as being an industrial cooling tower with no explanation for the crater. There were all sorts of rumors about this machine. Some claimed it contained red mercury, and the story was that there was a concave mirror on top of the device that provided the ability to see images from the past. <laughs> what? Is this Hellboy? Yeah, it sounds <laughs> this like it. Is an issue of Hellboy? Sounds like it. One of the most popular stories, um, the one I think you know, Joe, was that they were able to weaponize this device and that when in operation, it created a zone of effect around itself that would cause blood to coagulate yeah. inside the body. Yeah. Essentially boil you from it the inside out. It would boil you from out. the inside. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it would also, it was sort of like the mirror in Oculus where like you couldn't have any plants near it because they would just immediately die. I thought that was interesting. But if it did exist. Whoa, mama. Where is it? Yeah, that, that's it. Where I mean, is not, it now? Not to get all Fermi paradox here, but. Well, I, I'll tell you. Oh, you're going to lay it on me. Was it destroyed? Was it moved? Witkowski, the Polish author, believes it ended up in a Nazi-friendly South American country. That sounds about right. But several historians who believe in this weapon's existence say it was moved to the United States as part of a deal made with SS General Hans Kammler, who was another engineer who worked on the V-2 missile. Hmm. Now, no one knows what happened to this guy at the end. A lot of people say he killed himself, either by a shot to the head or a cyanide capsule. Some people think the Soviets executed him. In a sworn statement taken in 1959, Kamler's driver, Kurt Pruk, stated that Kamler's date of death was May 7th, 1945, and that his corpse had been observed by himself and two others. But there is now a declassified document from the Air Force that show him alive and in American hands on November 2nd, 1945. Mm. But his name is not on the Operation Paperclip uh, list. Yeah, he's got a new name and a new what identity. What we did with him is a mystery. And if he had any crazy future weapons to give us in exchange for his life, that is a mystery as well. Yeah, we probably gave him a new name and identity and chained him to a desk. Yeah. Many ufologists believe that the United States did acquire the bell, or at least the design parameters of the bell, and that we've all actually seen it in the United States. There was an event in 1965, on December 9th to be exact, where a fireball was reported by citizens of six different U.S. states and Canada. Something crashed down in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and it's now known as the Kecksburg UFO Incident. The official statement is that it was a meteorite, but witnesses disagree. They said it was glowing green with wisps of yellow, purple, and orange colors. Hosts of radio stations began taking calls from witnesses on air. They said that the object changed its path several times and that it ended up making a level descent away from populated areas. The first people on the scene said that it was partly buried in the ground and that it was metal between 10 and 12 feet long and generally shaped like an acorn or a bell. There were strange markings on a band near the bottom that resembled hieroglyphics. Within an hour, the military was on scene, and a few hours later, it was hauled away on the back of an army flatbed truck. The U.S. government claimed they were never tracking it, which Canadian officials think is strange, considering they were tracking it on their radar. A 10-year-old boy named John Hayes was outside playing football at the time and did not see the object at all, but he did get a good look at the military because they ended up setting up their command center in his family's two-story house that overlooked the woods where it landed. He said that the first thing they did was tell my parents to send us to bed, but he spent the entire night, this is my dude, he spent the entire night, quote, making trips to the bathroom (laughs) to try and spy on what these guys are doing. He said that there were a lot of men in uniforms and some men in suits and that the men in suits were clearly in charge of everything that was going on. He says that he saw six guys in what he now as an adult believes to be radiation suits take a box down to the hollow where the landing site was, but he never saw them bring the box back out. Mm. He also said the family later reviewed their phone bill and it showed no evidence of the calls that were made by the military from their house. Whoa, they scrubbed their phone bill? Yep. 
Other witnesses at the crash site say that when the military showed up and chased everyone away, they told some people there was a risk of radiation and others were just ordered to leave at gunpoint. A photographer named Ernie Hoffman was sent to the scene and arrived in time to see military men taking an object away on the back of a flatbed truck. But he says it was not a 10 to 12 foot object. It was small, like the size of two suitcases. But no one knows where the flatbed truck went. Some people believe it was taken to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, because a witness there claimed to have seen them come in the middle of the night with an object on a truck and what looked like a body under a blanket on a gurney. The U.S. Air Force still claims it was a meteorite, but everyone who has invested the case has said it comes down to three things. It was either a very secretive, very advanced man-made space vehicle, a spy satellite, or it was an extraterrestrial, or it was extraterrestrial. John Venture, who's the state director of the Mutual UFO Network, says that their absolute best guess is that it was a GE Mark II reentry vehicle. Apparently, it had been a spy satellite launched by the Air Force. The size and shape of this is, uh, they've seen pictures of this GE Mark II reentry vehicle, is similar to the Kecksburg UFO. The GE vehicle had four controlled jets, which would explain the controlled and turning descent. One of the metals in its construction was copper, which would explain the green flames. Photos of the reentry vehicle show markings that might have seemed foreign to civilian observers. They also believe it had a nuclear or atomic generator in it, and that's why they got there so quickly, and they were in radiation suits and a possible lead box going into the woods to avoid a radiation leak. Naturally. But NASA and the Air Force refused to answer any questions about it. So could it have been designed after the Deglock? an anti-gravity machine that the U.S. military received in exchange for Kamler's life. Hopefully they worked out the whole uh, make your blood coagulate part. Yeah, hopefully that part got sorted. Hopefully they ironed out that particular wrinkle. That seems like a real sticking point to me. There were a lot of um, weapons theorized that Hitler had or Hitler made that really are just sort of fantastical, but this is the only one that had enough chutzpah. What was the word I'm looking for? Chutzpah behind it to make actual, like, people that study this shit truly believe that it it could have existed. Mm, What it did, they don't know if it ever existed, if it was just theoretical, if it was a failed experiment, they don't know, but they do believe that it was something that was worked on and that they at least attempted to build. Wow. Pretty nuts. Pretty, 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 pretty nuts. crazy. Yeah. So do you think we can do another World War II episode sometime? Eventually. Yeah? You yeah. think there's enough oh, yeah. juice oh, in that yeah. war? <laughs> yeah. I think there's enough, uh, there's enough, uh, I don't know. I don't know what word to say. Yeah. I'm out of words. I'm out of words. Used I'm too all. tired. Used, <laughs> used all, the all words. my words. <laughs> I'm working all day. I'm podcasting at night. I'm tired as shit. All right. Um, thank you, Joey, for coming on an episode of Keep It Weird. Don't get it twisted. I had a blast. I know. I'm just out of gas. Yeah, me too. Thank you guys also for listening to our show. Obviously, every week uh, means the world to us that you continue to tune in and that you leave us reviews and that you go to our Patreon and donate to our show. It's just really nice. And also, listeners, um, if you like Joey, if you like me, we do have a new podcast. It's called Ask Me Everything. You can also find it for free on iTunes, Spotify, Libsyn, Google Play. I think that's it for now, but plenty of places for you to find this show. If you've got the internet, you can find it. Do you have the internet? 
you can find the show and uh it's a lot of fun it's just me and joey um and it's there's no theme no uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're the seinfeld of podcasts yeah, there's no it really theme. is a show about nothing. you will not learn anything no. but you'll have a good time well you'll learn you'll learn things you'll learn True. fun things yeah you'll learn yeah. you'll learn a lot about yourself you'll learn a lot based about on yourself. how you answer the questions we ask one another yeah but you also learn a lot of really arbitrary answers to arbitrary questions very true and you do there's learn nothing things. wrong with being a knower of things just ask mr know it knower a- of just things. ask me <laughs> knows everything useless and can't turn any of it into profit <laughs> lauren should be back next week um i think we're gonna record remotely she is in pittsburgh right now visiting her lovely husband's family and we i don't know what our topic's gonna be so you're just gonna have to tune in to find out Make sure that you're following us on social media at Keep It Weirdcast across all platforms. We're constantly posting cool things on there and taking tips from you on future subjects um, to talk about on the show. And, and, and we're doing giveaways and all kinds of stuff. So follow us there, especially on Instagram. Check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash keepitweirdpodcast. You can donate $1, 5 or $10 to our show once or monthly, and it'll get you a lot of bonus cool shit like bonus episodes. Joe and I just recorded one. It'll get you a bonus newsletter every month. It'll also get you discounts on merch and shout outs on the show. And you can also head to our Etsy page, www.etsy.com slash shop slash keep it weird podcast, where you can get a t-shirt, hoodie, sweatpants, There's some cool et shit cetera. On there. There's some really cool shit on there. We have new shirts now that are fudging awesome. They're really awesome. Check it out. Uh, there's a thanks, Allison shirt. Thanks Allison. <laughs> thanks, Allison. But in the meantime, Joe, what's our sign off today? Um, fuck the Nazis. Fuck the Nazis. Fuck the Nazis of the past. Fuck the Nazis of the present, and fuck the Nazis of the future. Nothing wrong with punching a Nazi. Nothing wrong with punching a Nazi. Take a page out of the Indiana Jones playbook and punch a Nazi right in the fucking face. Right in the nose. Where where do you punch people, Joey? Uh, Either just under their chin or just below their ear. You you heard it here first. Those are the two off buttons. All right. So fuck Nazis and keep it weird. But every single time I sing that song, I'm like, because I got one hand in my pocket and the other one is like, that's how I sing it, because I never, ever, ever, ever know which verse I'm on. There's uh, uh, I got one hand in my pocket and the other one's smoking a cigarette. Mm -hmm. I got one hand in my pocket and the other one's playing the piano piano. and the other one, uh, the other one's uh, giving a peace sign hailing a taxi cab.